the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. Good evening. Are Christians killjoys? Are Christians fun sponges? Are we spoil sports? You might be thinking, yes, some Christians are. But what about as a whole? What's our reputation like? Are Christians spoil sports? A lot of people think Christianity is about good works. And Christian morality is about spoiling fun. That, that's how it's sometimes portrayed. Like in the 1984 film Footloose, a musical still popular in theatres, where a Christian minister bans dancing in the town. Or the Christian character Ned Flanders in The Simpsons, who in one episode, talking to God, he says, I've always been good. I don't drink or dance or swear. Christianity is about spoiling people's fun. You're not allowed to laugh in church, are you? That's the perception, isn't it? And what's worse than that is the perception, which unfortunately applies to some Christians as well, is that because they abstain from certain God-created things, Christians think they are holier than people who don't. This is a theme of uh, the false teaching Paul is addressing in today's passage. What I'd like to do in the next few minutes is firstly briefly discuss how uh, one can go down this road of false teaching so we know to avoid it. Then we'll address the false teaching in Ephesus. And to finish, we'll discuss how we can correctly train ourselves in godliness according to some basic disciplines from the passage. First, here's a reminder of where we are in our series. In chapter 1, we heard of Timothy's commission. He's sent to Ephesus by Paul to confront the corrupt teaching there. In chapter 2 and 3, Paul gives Timothy instructions for the church on how to behave and be structured. And it ends with this lovely poem about Jesus. And in chapter 4 tonight, we get on to dysfunctional discipleship and correcting the bad, the bad theology that is being taught in Ephesus. To start, I'd like to spend some time briefly on how false teaching can come about, how we can detect it, and hopefully avoid it. Verse 1, Paul writes, The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits. Sadly, it shouldn't be a surprise that some abandon the faith, meaning they stop trusting in the gospel of Jesus and trust something else instead. It's sad when this happens, but we're warned it's going to happen. Jesus says in Matthew 24:10-11, At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Generally speaking, people don't realise they are not independent thinkers. Paul says there is a spiritual influence and a human influence on our thinking. In verse 1, Paul says, as well as the spirit of truth, there are deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. That's what the devil does. He lies, like in the Garden of Eden, where he lied to deceive Eve. Jesus called Satan the father of all lies. But not all false teaching comes from spiritual influence. Some comes from human lies. Verse 7, Paul says, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Silly myths told by humans can also influence our thinking. We're not independent thinkers. We can either be influenced by the Holy Spirit, by the spirit of truth, or by the spirit of falsehood, by deceiving spirits 
and silly human myths. Paul says in verse 2, the teachers of Ephesus were hypocritical liars. They didn't believe their own teaching and weren't obeying the rules and regulations they told others they had to. He says their consciences had been seared as with a hot iron. The image here, I think, is the medical practice of cauterization, when you would burn a wound with a hot iron, making it numb. The burning rendered the skin insensitive because it, because it actually kills the flesh. What these teachers did is they kept smothering the voice of their conscience, so it eventually became silent. If you keep ignoring your conscience long enough, you'll eventually cauterize it, as sim numbs your moral judgments. So here's the possible sequence of events for a false teacher that we need to watch out for. Firstly, they turn a deaf ear to their conscience. They ignore its warnings. Then, because they've done that, they have no problem being a hypocritical liar. Then they expose themselves to the influence of deceiving spirits. Then, tragically, they lead their listeners to abandon their faith. That's the route to avoid. Cauterized conscience, deliberate lies, deceived by demons, and then ruin the faith of others. For most of us, the application is to make sure we're not at risk of the first step. As Paul says in Acts 24:16, so I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Now we'll move on to addressing the actual false teaching going on in Ephesus. We see that this, uh, what this corrupt teaching is in verse 3. They forbid people to marry and ordered them to abstain from certain foods. Their teaching was that if you want to be holy, if you want to be close to God, you mustn't marry or have sex, and you mustn't eat certain foods, probably meat. Basically, avoid these evil earthly pleasures if you want to be godly. This is really wrong. Paul even says it's demonic and goes on to explain why. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. This is a really solid argument here from Paul. Marriage and food are consecrated, they're, they're clean, they're sacred, twice over. They're consecrated objectively, since God made them, and he said so in scripture. They're also consecrated subjectively, when we recognise they're a gift from God, and we receive them with thanksgiving and prayer. God made something by his word, and by the same word declared it to be good, and we know this and can thank God for it, then we have several reasons to enjoy it and thankfully celebrate it. Everything God created is good. Marriage was created by God, it's good. Food is created by God, it's good. Tobacco is created by God, it's good. Nothing God has created will make you more or less holy if you receive it with thanksgiving. Romans 14:17, that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. I think maybe the logic behind the teaching was, marriage and food relate to two of the most basic human appetites, sex and hunger. Both natural appetites, but both can be abused, for example, lust and gluttony. But these teachers in Ephesus went a step further and said food and marriage are evil in themselves. So give up marriage. You can't give up all food, but at least give up meat. But if holiness is achieved by abstaining from physical things, then it's quite easy, isn't it? Don't eat meat and, and I'll be holy. Meat is easy to legislate. 
it's much harder to legislate something from within the human heart like greed or jealousy. Rules about avoiding external things are much easier than developing genuine internal spiritual changes, righteousness, peace and joy. Giving up something physical doesn't make you more holy, but, but it's very easy to fall into that way of thinking. Some Christians think drinking alcohol is sinful. Some might look down on someone smoking outside the church. Alcohol and evil, uh, sorry, alcohol and tobacco are not evil. Human hearts are evil. Abstaining God's created things does not make you closer to God. Holiness is not achieved by avoiding all earthly pleasures. Sadly, some people still hold this view. It is called asceticism, which is really hard to say. Um, I googled asceticism in Christianity and it said asceticism is the practice of self-denial in order to attempt to draw closer to God. It may include such disciplines as fasting, celibacy, wearing simple or uncomfortable clothing, poverty, sleep deprivation and in extreme forms flagellation and self-mutilation. Now it's okay to be disciplined but hopefully you can see from 1 Timothy 4 asceticism does not make you closer to God. But you might be thinking, hang on a minute, doesn't the Bible teach abstinence? It talks about fasting, about sexual immorality, about drunkenness. Well, let's talk about fasting first. It's not wrong to fast and pray. Discipline is a good thing. It's not wrong to fast so you can focus on praying. There are great reasons to fast, but it's wrong to think fasting makes you more holy. It's not wrong to be vegan. There might be very good reasons, you know, ecological or social, uh, to be vegetarian. But it doesn't make you more godly. Fasting chocolate for Lent doesn't make you more holy. It might make you more healthy, but chocolate does not impact your holiness. The only thing you can give up that will make you more holy is sinning. Seventh-day Adventists don't drink coffee. Now, I'm not encouraging or discouraging caffeine, uh, alcohol or nicotine. There are very good reasons to not smoke, to be teetotal, so, so be encouraged if you are. But Christianity has nothing to do with what you eat or drink. And that actually makes Christianity quite unique compared to most other religions. But the Bible does say we should avoid sexual morality and drunkenness, so how does that fit? Well, notice what Paul says in verse 4. He doesn't say... For everything is good he says for everything god created is good god's creation is marred by the fall creation groans as in the pains of childbirth we're not saying all sexual activity is good because we know it's not god's gift good gift of sex has been abused drugs and alcohol can be abused but alcohol itself isn't wrong paul, Tim uh, paul tells timothy to take it regularly for his stomach we shouldn't go to the opposite extreme and say everyone must be celibate and teetotal. Some people are especially called to singleness, like Paul, and there are good reasons to remain single, but many of us won't, and neither being married or being single makes you more or less godly. So are Christians spoil sports? Are we killjoys? Well, we might say the Bible is opposed to sexual immorality, to drunkenness, but I'm not convinced those things actually bring genuine joy anyway. Christians should be the opposite of killjoys. We can use God's gifts to bring joy without abusing them. 
regardless we, we shouldn't be known as the people who say you know don't abuse this don't abuse that instead we should be giving people the gospel that's what we should be known for tonight you might be wondering how do i know if i'm abusing or abusing god's gift well are you thankful and who do you thank this doesn't just apply to food and marriage but all the gifts of our creator do you receive it verse 4 with thanksgiving and with prayer or are we abusing it in mindless gluttony as if god doesn't exist i'd like to read something from john stott which i think inc is incredibly rich yet concise and just sums this up so well um, so you could ignore what i've said and just listen carefully to this he says we should determine then to recognize and acknowledge appreciate and celebrate all the gifts of the creator the glory of the heavens of the earth of mountain river and sea of forest and flowers of birds beasts and butterflies and of the intricate balance of the natural environment the unique privileges of our humanness rational moral social and spiritual as we were created in god's image and appointed his stewards the joys of gender marriage sex children parenthood and family life and our extended family and friends the rhythm of work and rest of daily work as a means to cooperate with god and serve the common good and of the lord's day when we exchange work for worship the blessings of peace freedom justice and good government and of food and drink clothing and shelter and our human creativity expressed in music literature painting sculpture and drama and in the skills and strengths displayed in sport to reject these things is to abandon the faith since it insults the creator to receive them thankfully and celebrate them joyfully is to glorify god who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment 1 timothy 6 17. excellent we'll now move on to the next part of our passage where paul describes the basic disciplines of the christian faith which can train us in godliness he says verse 7 have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives tales rather train yourself to be godly verse 8 is quite challenging isn't it physical training is of some value it's good to exercise but that's not the main point uh, main point of the verse despite me seeing some sermons devoted entirely to those five words physical training is of some value we need to read the whole verse for the true meaning for physical training is of some value but godliness has value for all things holding promise for both the present life and the life to come yes there are advantages to keeping fit but they can't compare to the benefits of godliness if you want to get ahead physically you need to train but the benefits are limited the physically fit still die but godliness has benefits for this life and the life to come forgiveness purpose meaning justice love fellowship compassion self-control jesus brings us immortality training ourselves to be godly has eternal value it prepares us for eternity paul says to timothy verse 11 command and teach these things don't let anyone look down on you because you are young but set an example for the believers in speech in conduct in love in faith and in purity until i come devote yourself to the public reading of scripture to preaching and to teaching 
How do we train ourselves to be godly and prepare ourselves for heaven? Firstly, by being devoted to God's word. Just like with physical training, you need to eat healthily and avoid junk food. If you're training in godliness, you need spiritually to eat healthily. Avoid the junk food of myths. Devote yourself to God-centered scripture and its preaching and teaching. Train, be trained, and train others in godliness by being devoted to God's word. Remember and read the words of faith. Read God's word. Recite it. Come together and learn from it. Paul commands Timothy to put to to put this in front of the Christians in Ephesus. He tells Timothy, if people look down on you because you're young, set an example in the way you speak, in being loving, in being faithful and trustworthy, in your conduct and self-control. Timothy was young compared to the elders in Ephesus, probably in his 30s. The temptation is when our leadership is questioned, resisted or, or even threatened, we assert our power more strongly, maybe even becoming tyrannical. Christian leaders shouldn't do that. Father, they should lead by example in their speech and their life, in word and deed. If people look down on you because of your age, make sure they look up to you because of your example. And submit to God's word as the authority as you teach it, so it's seen as God's teaching, not your teaching or Timothy's teaching. Another way to train ourselves in godliness is to exercise our gifts. A verse in this passage which I think is really liberating but also quite scary is verse 15. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Paul wants people to see Timothy get better which means you don't have to be perfect before you start teaching the Bible. You don't have to know everything in order to preach otherwise no one would do it. Christian leaders and teachers don't have to come across as perfect without visible flaws and blemishes. You don't have to have arrived and know everything before you serve in, in any capacity. None of us are perfect. It would be dishonest to pretend we were. Also, the appearance of perfection is actually quite discouraging to others. We shouldn't go to the other, other extreme and parade our failures, but we should continue to go forward, always improving, so others see our progress. If you go to see a doctor, you don't want to see one who stopped learning new things 20 years ago. In the same way, as Christians, we should always be learning, always practicing, always developing and exercising our gifts. Practice is important, like an athlete. If you don't practice, your skills will get rusty. We need to keep exercising our gifts to train ourselves in godliness. Finally, to pursue godliness, we must watch our life and doctrine closely. Verse 16. Watch your life and doctrine closely, persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Notice the balance here, life and doctrine. Watch them both, both your life, your family life, your work, your leisure, and your doctrine, your ministry, your theology. Watch them both. Don't neglect one over the other. Don't focus so much on doctrine and, teachy, uh, and teaching and your ministry in church that you neglect your character and your conduct and how you behave in your family. Watch both your life and doctrine closely. Paul says persevere in them. Keep running the race. By doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, obviously, Timothy can't directly save um, himself or others. Jesus is the saviour, the one who came to save sinners 
to lay down his life for the salvation of others. Our privilege is to partner with him, to toil and strive to share the gospel that saves with others and persevere in our own faith until the end. Those are some basic principles of the Christian faith according to this passage which can train us in godliness, which hold value for all things, holding promise for both the present and the life to come. Devote yourself to scripture, exercise your gifts, watch your life and doctrine closely.